0: We're in 2 Thessalonians, continuing our series, the intersection of suffering and God's justice can be difficult. Suffering in and of itself is a difficult topic to address. It's not an easy one, but we're talking especially about suffering caused by someone else's sin. Some suffering happens simply because we live in a fallen and broken world. God created He made it all good, he made man in his image, he called it very good, and then man by his sin plunges creation, plunges humanity into sin and the curse that comes with it, and so disease and death and um, what we would call natural disasters and even the the decay and the painful parts of, of growing old are all consequences of God's creation being subjected to futility because of man's sin. And so all of us face to varying degrees every day some of the consequences of living in a fallen world. But the suffering that's addressed in 2 Thessalonians is primarily that which is caused by other people's evil. It is um, those who are in the world who are not believing in Jesus Christ who are persecuting those who do believe in Jesus Christ. And the church at Thessalonica was born into that kind of atmosphere, an idolatrous, uh, God-hating atmosphere. We see it um, from the Greek side of things, the Gentile side of things. There was the belief in a pantheon of gods, and you had Christianity saying there is but one God, and that is the God that we worship, and all others are are not. They are not gods, and so that created resistance within the Gentile world, and then certainly we know from the Jewish side, there was the sense of why would anyone put their hope in this supposed Messiah who was put to death by the Roman government? Why would you be believing in him? How would you go on to suggest that Jews are not just by birth part of God's children, that they don't just inherit that by virtue of, of being Jewish? And, and furthermore, the, the thing that alienated, at least in their minds, the, the Jewish thinkers was the fact that here's Paul preaching, and it is Gentiles who are responding, and Paul's preaching is that the Jewish Messiah has come, and by believing in him, you can enter into the kingdom of God. And so for many of the Jews, that was just utterly repulsive, and that's what leads them then to to reject Paul and Silas, and as we read last week, looking in the book of Acts, some of the history behind the church at Thessalonica, um, literally stirring up a mob against Paul and Silas and forcing them to flee the town for their lives. And so they, they leave, but there's every reason to believe, especially from what we see in First and 2 Thessalonians, that the violence continued, that there continued to be persecution of those who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that would have come from, from folks who were near, from family and friends and neighbors. And so the suffering is overwhelming, and that kind of suffering inevitably raises questions. Uh, Questions that tie into God's justice. Why is he being patient? As as I'm enduring unjust mistreatment, why is God seeming to allow this? When will the persecutors be judged? When when does Jesus return? We've been told to expect his imminent return to rescue us. And, and, And so why is that not happening? Worse yet, what we gather from 1 and 2 Thessalonians is just some misunderstanding about the teaching concerning the return of the Lord. Uh, Paul is responding to questions in his first letter to the Thessalonians that seem to be emphasized again in 2 Thessalonians, which, which almost seem to indicate that there's some sense of wondering, has God forgotten us? We've been taught to believe in this return of Jesus Christ that is great and glorious, that judges the wrongdoers and rescues those who have been saved. And here we are in the middle of this incredible persecution, wondering if that's already happened, and we've been left behind if if we've misunderstood this day of the Lord, and just struggling to understand that with doubts and questions. And so a chief reason why Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, and you're going to see it in particular next week as we go on into chapter 2, where he speaks even more specifically about the day of the Lord. But a chief reason is to assure these young believers, you are not mistaken. You are going through something that, that you should expect to go through. And, and God is just in this, as we'll see. And, I, and, and, and Paul is wanting to give them assurance. God has not forgotten you. So he is going to teach them a theology of suffering and in particular, tie that to God's justice. What happens when the suffering is caused by other people's evil? How to respond to that? What if it's somebody else's abuse or neglect or mistreatment? And so we're going to pick up in 2 Thessalonians 1. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. This week, I, four lessons for believers about God's justice in our suffering. And, and I just gave you four headings in the notes there to put these under. Purification punishment, promise, and purpose. Uh, Just the four categories to to think about as we walk through this. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 just because it helps as we launch into verse 5. When Paul wrote this, he didn't have paragraph headings and and, and subject headings, you know, dividing up the book. It just would have flowed. And so I'm going to read from verse 4 down through verse 12. He says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 that really begins this section that we're in is is a difficult verse um, grammatically our English translations start verse 5 with this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God this is is supplied by our English translations when Paul writes this he goes from all your persecutions and and the inflictions that you are enduring evidence or proof of the righteous judgment of God and so that raises a question then immediately as to what is this evidence pointing to? What, what is this evidence that he's talking about? And that's why our, our translation supply this is. They're trying to, to say that grammatically it seems that it's, it's pointing back. He's pointing back to something that he just said that is then the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, which then should raise the question of what exactly is this evidence that he's pointing back to? There's really two options from verse 4. There's, the first option is that he's pointing simply to the afflictions, all your persecutions and the inflictions and the afflictions you are enduring, evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So he's saying that the, the actual suffering, the actual persecution that they are enduring is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Or he's saying that it is your steadfast faithfulness in enduring. Those afflictions. So he's commenting more on the, the steadfast endurance, the faithfulness, if you will. We're inclined to like the latter, to, to, to sort of lean toward the, the second of those options and say that, well, the, God's righteous judgment in saving a person is. is is evidenced by the way that they would endure persecution, that that would show that God has saved them, and and that seems to be the evidence. And and that sounds better, because the other option also is harder to explain, that being that the persecution and suffering of the believers is actual evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And yet, it is that that last one that I just said, the, the persecutions and afflictions, that really is the more natural reading It's coming right out of verse four, where he spoke of all your persecutions and the afflictions you are enduring, evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It seems to flow from out of that, but it's also more consistent with what he says next, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. His emphasis is on their suffering. It's on the affliction, and it is the, the suffering itself, it is the persecution itself that is evidence of the righteous judgment of God now that's that's where it gets a little tricky for us I I, I think we need to understand when he moves to verse 5 and says evidence he he's he's transitioning he has already commended them for their endurance, their faithfulness. He did that in verse 4. We boast in the churches about your faithful endurance. So he's already commended that that's a good thing. That's a, that's a God working in you, giving you endurance and persecution. But now what he's transitioning to is this section of Scripture that really deals with God's justice in all of this. And there are questions about, is God just? And so now he's saying to them to begin with, even your suffering, even these afflictions, even that is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And we pause there because that's a it's a difficult concept to grasp as to in what way is being persecuted an evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I want to compare this passage because I think there's some similarities to something Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter 3 and 4, he's dealing a, a lot with suffering and also with the justice of God. But he's, he's talking about unjust suffering, uh, persecution, same thing that, that Paul is addressing because that's so prevalent in the early church, and, and talking about a world that hates those who live for the righteousness of Christ. And in 1 Peter four thirteen, he speaks of fiery trials that have come upon you to test you. And then goes on to say, and rejoice when you are Given these opportunities to suffer injustice for your Savior. And then he writes this, and, and I want to read this passage and key in, in Kian, particularly on verse 17. 1 Peter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Again, Peter has been on the subject of both suffering and justice. Same same sort of... Um, dialogue, if you will, that we're coming across in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in terms of trying to answer questions related to the intersection of, of those two subjects. He's previously said at the beginning of 1 Peter, um, God is impartial. He is an impartial judge, that Jesus, when he was on the cross, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So he's already been emphasizing the justice of God. And then, in fact, in verse 16, he makes the point, as we just read, that that unjust suffering gives this particular opportunity to, to bring glory to God as you suffer. And we'll see that, in fact, in 2 Thessalonians, and the, the last point that we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, the idea is bringing glory to God in that. But verse 17 is where Peter's explanation about suffering gets a little difficult, like 2 Thessalonians 1.5, in that he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Again, that should cause us to pause We don't fully experience, most of us have not fully experienced what these early believers are, and that is out-and-out persecution for their faith and affliction. And yet here are the writers of Scripture saying that this is part of the just judgment of God. So not only does suffering provide the opportunity to to, to be like Christ and to glorify God in in the suffering, but there's also this divine judgment element that comes out. The, The Greek word for judgment in 1 Peter 4:17 is the same as it is in 2 Thessalonians 1:5. Both are talking about righteous judgment. The word can mean affirmation, declaration, the fact that God is declaring this through this when he makes this judgment. So both are showing God is God is doing something in the believer in the course of unjust suffering that is preparing or equipping the believer for that judgment that is preparing him or working in him toward the end of that declaration by God. So in in suffering affliction, we already know from many places in the New Testament that suffering affliction has a is designed to have a purifying effect in us. It's designed to grow us in our faith. It's designed, First Corinthians 3 speaks of a judgment of works, and that which is wood, hay, and stubble is burned off, but that which remains is is like precious jewels, like um, that which has been acted on in faith. And so that the idea, of one of the things throughout the New Testament suffering is that it's refining us. It's purifying within us and purifying our faith and causing it to be more steadfast. And it's a faith then that testifies by God's judgment, of us belonging to the kingdom of God. And that's that's what seems to be at the the issue here. If you think about 2 Thessalonians what we've said, the context is not just present living, but it's present living with the the day of the Lord in view. It's present living with the idea that that Christ is returning and I will spend eternity with him. There's this, this constant sort of forward look to it of the coming day of the Lord, and that is a day of God's great judgment. That's when all of God's judgment comes to fruition at this point at which, is, as, as we saw last week in, in Matthew 24 and 25, there's this division of, of mankind to the left and to the right. There's this ultimate declaration by God of those who come into his rest And those who depart from him, who are sent away from him. And so the one who has suffered for Christ, whose faith has been purified through trials, if you will, has been refined through trials, will be judged on that day as worthy of the kingdom of God. 2 Thessalonians 1.5, that you may be considered, reckoned, worthy of the kingdom of God let me read to you from one commentator who helps to explain this. He says, it was not necessary for the readers to suffer in order to be considered worthy of God's dominion, but the writer certainly wished to comfort them with the fact that as a result of their experience of affliction, they were considered worthy of it by God. The judgment of God, the the, the suffering and the affliction is demonstrating what on the day of the Lord will be being worthy of the kingdom of God. It will be sort of evidence, as the word says, or proof, additional sort of evidence of the fact of God's salvation, the, the, the suffering that the believer has endured. And that's why Peter's emphasis in 1 Peter 4 is, is similar to Paul's in 2 Thessalonians 1. You will suffer when you suffer. Suffer as one who has faith in Jesus Christ, Remember that God is at work in your suffering don't be don't be don't if you're suffering because of consequences of your own actions that's one thing but when you suffer especially unjustly, don't be grumbling about that or or shaking your fist at God in that sort of circumstance that, that, that this is some consequence or something understand that that God is at work in this refining and also declaring your worthiness of the kingdom of God by virtue of suffering as your Savior did. Suffer as a follower of Christ, knowing that in the day of judgment, your suffering will be evidence of God's righteousness in saving you. God's affirming that this is right. This one is mine. This one has suffered. Suffering like Christ will show that you are worthy of his kingdom. Now, I realize that's a that's a challenging point for us, but that's the way the text is flowing both in in Peter and and in Paul here in in 2 Thessalonians, to allow, to to say to these believers, rather than grumbling about this, understand that God's justice is shining in you. Ultimately, that will be seen on the day of the Lord when that judgment is, is shown. And that day is coming when you will stand before the Lord and you will hear, well done, good, and faithful servant. That will be the affirming declaration of the king In light of your having suffered, your suffering is evidence that you are worthy of the eternal reward of being with your Savior. You're not not saved by the suffering. And let me be really clear, because I I don't want to in any way have anybody go, all right, got to work a little harder here in order to suffer. Please, I don't want that. Because he said it in this passage down in verse 10 that, that... when Christ comes, he will be glorified in the saints, marveled at by all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. It's faith. He has already said that, and keep it all in context. He's already said that back in the prior verses. It is the flourishing of your faith, your faith in God. So it's it's by grace that you are saved. It's the same thing why, even when Peter speaks of the judgment. He speaks of judgment beginning where? At the household of God. He's not saying judgment is here so that you can enter the household of God. He's saying the judgment is actually happening within the household of God. It is those who already trust in Christ, purposefully preparing them, equipping them, that one day God will declare them as worthy of his kingdom. It is a display of his justice because he is leading us as overcomers who will endure to the end, to, to go back to the language of 1 John, that we would be overcomers. That's a purifying part of suffering. The punishment part now. Let me reread verses 6 through 9. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God, in his justice, uses affliction in the lives of believers to display his righteous judgment that they are worthy of his kingdom. If he does that in his people, as Peter said, how much more? Can we expect to see God's justice played out in the lives of those who have opposed him, those who have persecuted his people? He answers it first in verse 6. There's sort of a progression to this passage. First, it's to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So he's looking specifically at the people who are afflicting the, the Thessalonians, who are the persecutors, and he's saying they will be repaid. They who have afflicted you will receive Divine affliction. Uh, God's justice will come. It, 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 this is just an important thing to, for him to say to the Thessalonians because. You know this, we, we all in moments of suffering can be caught in that moment and not having an eternal perspective to it. So it's that that whole Ecclesiastes, when the writer of Ecclesiastes calls it life under the sun, he's trying to make the argument that sometimes there's like, there's a ceiling here and when it's under the sun, we, we've only got limited understanding. We don't fully grasp all this. There's more that goes on in the counsel of God than we can fully grasp. And so sometimes under the sun, when we're being afflicted, we're thinking this isn't right, what... It, That person's getting away with it, that that God doesn't seem to be judging them in some way. This does not seem to be handled according to God's perfect justice. And so the point of verse 6 is, trust me, Thessalonians, their affliction will come as sure as God's character is just. He will afflict them as they have afflicted you. That's why the day of the Lord is so utterly serious, because it is this day of of God's judgment, of, of Christ the King judging those who have persecuted his people. But but verse eight obviously broadens that out. And this is where verses eight and nine um, should be the verses that, that probably most hit us in such a powerful way when it says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Well, the reasons I went back to first Peter four is there's, there's, such parallelisms between the two, because in 1 Peter four seventeen he says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And Paul uses that language that says, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, upon them will vengeance be inflicted. As difficult as Paul's words are here in 2 Thessalonians 1, we dare not try to soften them try to somehow duck them, try to reimagine them, to use sort of cultural lingo that, well, that's what it says, but it can't really mean that. Paul spoke first of those who persecuted the Thessalonian believers. We sort of say, okay, there's sort of eye for eye sort of thing here, but then verse eight, all who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ do so at the peril of terrible, eternal punishment. The the, the language in verse 9 is explicitly clear in that the punishment for unbelief, it says, is eternal destruction. I can take either one of those words and I can define it just fine. It's putting them together. That's the problem. I can say eternal. I know what eternal is. It is forever. It goes on and on. There is no no end to eternal. I can take destruction and I can say I know what that means. It means to to ruin something, to destroy something. It is the you know the the clip on the news when the old building has been vacated and is finally brought down. The explosives are put in it and it comes down into a pile of dust at the end, and we say that that building has been destroyed. And and so I get. That I get what destruction, and I, I I want to think then that's like annihilation; it's ruined. But eternal destruction, that's hard, because now what what Scripture is describing, is an eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. It's now talking about the experience of the destruction of the of the ruin, going on forever. It's talking about an ongoing state of experiencing. The, the, the justice and the wrath of God in a state of, of experiencing destruction, agonizing destruction. And that experience will be entirely apart from the presence of God. Think about that. that that's, that's hard for us to even grasp. The unbeliever who lives today still experiences, even if they deny it, still experiences the blessings of God's common grace. They still live on a planet that God created and ordered. They, they'll they try to attribute it to all sorts of other chants happening, but it's, it's been put here and we are sustained here by the good hand of God and we breathe God's air and drink God's water and, 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 and are blessed by God's provision and there's the Holy Spirit who's at work through other believers who is bringing conviction and illumination and helping, hopefully showing them who Christ is. There's, there's so much that common grace brings. And that will end completely. To be saved, we love to revel in this. To be saved is to know that we will be with the Lord forever. To not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be excluded from his presence and his goodness forever, to never again experience the common grace of God and to be in a state of eternal destruction. I know, you know, there are people who desperately want to explain this away, who will try to say that parts of Scripture are just, this is just man, these are just man's ideas, this this whole eternal destruction thing, You've you've got the angry rantings of a former Jewish priest who has been beaten and imprisoned too much. That, that, you know, Paul is just, he's an angry guy because of all the times that he's been beaten to, and in fact, stoned and left to the point of near death, and, and this is just him ranting. Listen, if you are going to at least be consistent in your view of Scripture and Scripture's authority, you cannot say, I'll take the part about the promise of affliction for affliction, of, punishment for sin. I'll really embrace the part when it talks about relief for those who belong to him, that there's eternal rest for them. But I draw the line at this whole eternal destruction thing. Once, once you go there, you have now said my mind and my wisdom are somehow smarter and higher than God's. That, that the holy and righteous creator God who revealed his word I, I stop here, and I think this would be better. We can't do that. Who am I to do that? The, the holy God gave his own beloved son to be tortured to death and to bear his wrath on the cross for my sin, and I'm going to somehow question his judgment that, that somehow this is unjust. I... The the, the righteous God whose law is just and true has declared that he is patient. He is not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. And so we are in these last days watching God's mercy on a day-by-day basis. We are testimonies of God's grace on a daily basis because we who are trusting in Christ have been rescued from that eternal destruction, not by anything that, that we've done in ourselves but simply by the finished work of Jesus Christ and trusting in that. And and so God is calling all to repent, and that day is today, and the history of the last 2,000 years of the last day are a a wonderful trophy to, to God's gracious patience in saving people. But God will not be mocked. Those who, as he describes here, remain in this stubborn state of not obeying the gospel, who refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ, will stand before him on the day of the Lord. They will be confronted with the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then they will be excluded from his presence forever. God will not on that day say, that whole holy thing, I I was just sort of a facade to sort of scare you into obeying. I didn't really mean it. He's not going to do that. God is just and his character is unchanging. And so this warning of punishment in 2 Thessalonians should be sobering to us. It should not rest easy on our ears or our hearts because we live in a world surrounded by people who who are not obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ and refuse to turn to Jesus Christ. And they will face a day of reckoning because the holy justice of God demands it. And I would say to you what I said when we went back through 1 John. I I think the emphasis is we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters that they would endure, praying for their faithfulness. But that does not exclude the fact that that we should have an urgency still for the world around us. For those who, as, as Paul will go on to say in 2 Thessalonians, may the word of the Lord speed forward. Pray for me that the word would speed forward. There there should still be that hunger and that desire that our lives would live out testimonies of who Jesus is and that his word would go forth and that we would be calling people to repentance and to trust in Jesus Christ. Because for those who know God, there's a promise in this passage. Those who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse seven says, he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We've seen God's justice at work in believers, God's justice in his punishment of unbelievers, but there is this assurance to believers that is also a display of his justice. This will end. This, this season that you are in will not go on, and it will not just end, but you will enter into a time of, Relief is what the ESV says. Rest is really the, the, what the word pictures there. A time of, of liberty. It's the same word that is used in Acts 24 um, when, when Paul is imprisoned and Governor Felix says, I want you to keep him under guard, but I want you to give him some anasis. The, 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 the Greek word is the same one that's used here. I want you to give him some liberty. I, I want his friends to be able to come and tend to his needs. So he's under guard, but he has an experience of relief or rest for believers in Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what you will go through, what suffering you've experienced or what suffering still lies ahead. But I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you are trusting in Christ, there is a promise of rest. Rest. And it's not a temporary rest. It's not one of those quick naps that you're going to take. It is an eternal rest. Hebrews 4 describes it as an eternal rest that those enter into who are trusting in Christ. And it is not a rest for those who do not trust in him, those who are disobedient. To use the language of Paul and Peter, those who disobey the gospel. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ... And you are walking in affliction today or your past is littered with abuse or affliction from the hands of other people and you sometimes can't even fathom what it's like to look forward with some measure of hope. Can I I encourage you again that, that, that scripture says your king is coming and on that day of the Lord, what he wants for you to experience is relief. He wants you to rest in his presence, worship him, glorify him, But do so knowing that there will be no more slander, there will be no more hurt, there will be no more accusations, there will be no more insults, no more mocking, you will enter his rest that he has prepared for you. That is God's promise, and that should encourage our hearts. Last two verses of this section, he transitions now from what's been really started as a thanksgiving and, and, a, and it's sort of a diversion into God's justice in all of this, as Paul is inclined to do. Now to finish up his praying, he intercedes. And so verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Purification, punishment, promise so far. Here's the last one, and it's the purpose of God exercising his justice in our suffering. First thing that we should note here, when Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. Paul is saying this to people who are suffering. Even as they read this letter, they are under the threat of further persecution. They are familiar with people who have lost loved ones, they are knowing that there is still a threat, and so the persecution is ongoing. We know that the violent mob that chased Paul and Silas out of town was still there. We understand the nature of first century persecution, and we also know from the questions that, that he's responding to in First Thessalonians when he talks about those who have fallen asleep, that there's the potential that some of that persecution actually led to the deaths of loved ones. And, and, and so there is intense suffering, and Paul says, listen to me. We are praying for you. We are constantly praying. Silas and Timothy and I are praying for you because we understand that when you are suffering, man, the heart can can go all over the place. When, When you are suffering, especially when it's because somebody's being unjust to you or mistreating you, your mind can think all sorts of things about where is God and what's God doing and this doesn't seem right and why should I continue to be obedient to God? Why should I continue to walk in faith if what that does is it invites more persecution as opposed to just just pretending I don't even know him, do like Peter, I, I'm not sure who that is and somehow just get by. And so he says we are praying for you. And the start of his intercession really echoes back to verse 5. We pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. There it is. What we saw in verse 5 was your, your suffering is making it so that God reckons you worthy. And now he says, May God make you worthy. And so we, we're tempted here to say, which is it? And it's it's both. It is this is that that beautiful marriage that we see in the New Testament between God's sovereign. Exercise of his will, God ensuring that what he, has, what he has commissioned, what he has said will happen, and our responsibility to continue to obey him and to not simply say, well, God's sovereign, so it doesn't matter what I do, and I can just sort of sit here and do nothing. One of the things we're going to see when we get to the end of Second Thessalonians is one of the, 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 the problems going on in Thessalonica is idleness. It's this, they're not working. And, and so some of what we're surmising here is day of the Lord's coming, I'm sick of this whole thing, I'm doing nothing. I, I'm, just, I'm just sitting here waiting, I got, you know, the old picture of sitting on the rooftop waiting for Jesus to come and, and take me home sort of mentality. But it's both here. It's the combination of, yes, God keeps his people. God empowers his people. Verse 12 says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's up to God to empower and to grace you in order to do this. But you, Thessalonians, still must press forward. You still have to be obedient. In fact, you see it in the next phrase there in verse 11. We're praying God makes you worthy and may fulfill what? Every resolve for good. What does he mean by that? every good desire that you have you as you you as Thessalonian believers your hearts have been changed you, you now desire the right thing and he's saying I know that God is is causing you to desire that's what's, what's right so now I'm praying that God would fulfill your resolve to do good when you when you desire when you delight in doing good I'm praying that God would would empower you to then to then do it and he, he in in takes it then in the next phrase, to the work of faith. So it's the idea that God would work in you to cause you to continue to desire good and then to do it when he says that work of faith. Not just talk about it, but actually do it. Not just desire it, but actually do it. This is is very much the same pattern Paul uses when he talks to the Philippians in chapter 2, And he says to work out your salvation, you do your part, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will according to his purpose, to to accomplish his good will in you. So both are present. You are called to suffer and, and, and yet to still desire to do good, still desire to obey God, to not fall into the temptation that says, why, if I'm suffering, do I continue to serve him? if he's not stopping this. No, your resolve should be to do good and to honor him and and to allow him to empower you now to work that out. And it's all, as he says, for this joyous purpose, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in us so that people would see Christ in us, so that they would see that even when they suffer, even when we're torturing them, even when we're persecuting or we're depriving them or whatever it is, they still seem to have this unexplainable reliance on a God they cannot see. They still seem to find their hope in him. They they still seem to trust that he's just, even when we're mistreating them. So when God shows his justice by walking his children through affliction and through persecution, when God shows his justice on the day of the Lord by punishing those who do not obey his gospel and by rescuing and giving relief to those who do, in all of that, it's all meant to point back to Jesus. It's all meant to say, what a great God we serve. What a glorious Savior, because it's all evidence of a just righteous God who is worthy of our lives and our praise and even our suffering. In the midst of this suffering, God's work is speaking and saying, remember, God is just. God is just. Even if you don't see it right at this moment, you rest in this truth that his judgments are righteous and it will prevail. And so when you are experiencing affliction from the hands of others, abuse, slander, whatever the treatment is, Satan desperately wants to tell you, God is so unfair. God is so uninterested in where you are. He is so far from you at this point. This will never get resolved. You are just a victim in this and God doesn't care. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians to say, your Savior suffered he was sinless, and he suffered in your place, and now your suffering is part of God's good design to continue to magnify his name and to continue to show that one day when that day of the Lord comes and you are taken into that eternal rest, it will be the declaration that your suffering has, has shown that, that you are worthy of that, not that it saved you. Let me be so clear about that again before we end today. The only way... That anyone is saved is solely by God's grace, by putting faith in Jesus Christ, and trusting that it is Christ alone who saves you. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again, and it is his life, death, and resurrection that saves you from the penalty, do your sin. That's the only way that anyone is saved. But the beauty of what he's describing here as he's looking forward to the day of salvation is not that your suffering is the basis for your salvation, but your suffering is refining you. It is purifying your faith, and it is preparing you for that day when not only will you exhale in relief, but you will know that you are right where you are to be, where God has made you to be, where God saved you to be, where Jesus Christ died in your place so that you might be. And you will enter into his eternal rest. Let's pray together. Father, we need, there are brothers and sisters here, some maybe watching online who, who need to hear what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. We need to walk in their shoes because we we are either, some are experiencing affliction that is unjust, some have experienced it and, and have a terrible history of suffering that, and it it looms large and weighs heavy on them. Some, there will be future suffering. Lord, we need to be reminded of these truths. We need to know that our God is just and that the abuser and the persecutor and the violent afflictor is not being passed over by you, it's not being ignored. But as you have said here very clearly in your word, there is a day of your vengeance. It's a word that just shakes us to imagine the the just, rightful vengeance of God being poured out. Father, I join with my brothers and sisters in Christ here in praising you that we who have been saved have been rescued from that day. We do not fear that day of your wrath, because Jesus took it in our place. Thank you. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who are particularly dealing with this. I pray that there would be encouragement today, that you are a just God, that their suffering has not been and will not be meaningless, but that it, it is building up an eternal weight of glory, that it will one day, it will be so clear and all of this was for Christ, all of this demonstrates just the worthiness of inheriting the, the eternal rest that you give. Thank you, Father, for those suffering, whether it's afflictions or just from a fallen world. Thank you that those who trust in Christ, there is that rest. Uh, Lord, we, we are eager to serve you and glorify you here in our lives and bodies. As Paul would say, I, I'm I'm content being right here, serving you right here and now. You have a place for me here, but, but to be absent from the body and present with the Lord hmm, would be better by far. And so, Lord, help us to, to live in faith now while we wait for Jesus to come and help us to know that there will be a sweet eternal rest for all who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Give us also, we pray, Lord, a sense of urgency, As Paul will pray later in this letter, that the word would spread, that it would be moved forward well and quickly. Lord, we understand that he's wanting to bring the gospel to places beyond his reach, and I pray that you would give us in Grace Bible Church a heart for this community of Lorton, this county of Fairfax, for our neighbors, for those around that the word of the Lord might speed through us, that it might be lived out in our lives, it might be on our lips, it might be that which we've memorized and meditated on so that it's what we speak when we have opportunities to urge those who do not know you and do not obey your gospel, that there is a Savior that they can run to and they can find eternal life in him. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Apply it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.